0: Welcome to Arts Career Evolutions by Out of the Arts. Your hosts are Beth and Amy. We will help you bridge the gap between an arts career and a career outside the arts industry.
1: Hey, awesome humans. Welcome to another week of Out of the Arts podcast. If you've been with us before, we're glad you're back. If this is your first episode, welcome for the first time. We are so glad you're joining us.
0: We are on a mission to help you navigate the world when looking for a job in a new industry. Sometimes we will share how to get a job and update your resume, and sometimes we'll talk about how to find a new industry that speaks to your values. We are talking with Catherine about how her values helped her decide to shift away from working in the arts and into other fields. She's driven by the idea of helping people, like so many of us are, and there are a lot of ways of doing that.
1: Because today is all about how a company's values can disagree with our personal values, we're going to split this by talking about nonprofit companies and for-profit companies. If you aren't in a place to take notes, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, or Facebook for these tips.
0: We will be posting them there in bite-sized pieces for you. To start, we're going to talk about nonprofits. When you think about a job or a company that fits your values, a lot of us think about nonprofits first. And there are a million of them. The difference in working for a nonprofit versus a for profit company is that nonprofits, at the end of the year, reinvest all of their profits into their company, versus a for profit organization which splits it up amongst share owners. When nonprofits, while nonprofits are notorious for not paying as well, it doesn't mean that they pay poorly. This is especially true when you get to the larger organizations. Haven't you seen those images that go around where people say, oh, don't donate to the Red Cross? Their CEO makes six figures. And yeah, they should make six figures. They're running a multi-million dollar organization. That's the pay for someone doing that work. So what kind of organizations are out there for nonprofit work?
1: Uh, yes.
0: <laughs> like
1: legitimately everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything. I mean, for every
0: for-profit
1: industry you can think of, there's a nonprofit to mirror it somewhere out there.
0: And at least one. We were talking before the show started to think about multiples. And so it's good to know nonprofit organizations have every job position you can imagine. They need copywriters. They need marketers. They need development specialists. They need trainers and customer service reps. They need all of these different positions. Just because it's a nonprofit doesn't mean they don't have the events coordinator, or communications director, or anything like that.
1: Yeah, and even things you may not think of, they need IT. They need finance. They need graphic designers. They need tech people. I mean, they need people to do data analytics. Just about everything you can think of. In the for-profit world is also available somewhere in the nonprofit world.
0: And the advantage that you have going into a nonprofit organization, even if it's not a theater company, is that you are used to working all hands on deck. You are used to thinking about the big picture. You are used to thinking about how does this impact the next person down the line, which is something necessary for nonprofits. That's how they grow and how they operate because they usually don't have an abundance of staff. Sometimes that's not true. Sometimes larger organizations do have the huge staff, but a lot of times they don't. And so it's really important that you as an employee can think about how you're impacting other people, how you're making this work down the line. What is this going to cost? And since you're already used to doing that as an arts professional, that's really going to help you thrive in this environment. Yes,
1: the ability to learn quickly and to adapt and to understand all the moving pieces and take them into consideration, even if your job isn't to be the CEO or the director of whatever and make those decisions, you still need to understand how things flow. And as a person who comes from the entertainment industry, you have always been a small piece of a large puzzle and understanding how it all fits together and it translates really well to the nonprofit profit world
0: yeah no matter what job you're getting it's definitely a successful skill to have all of that
1: yeah and then of course we have the for-profit world and we've seen a lot of this in you know movies and tv the the soulless profiteers and things like that. But hear us out. Many for-profit organizations also give you time to volunteer, will match donations, and sometimes partner with nonprofits in annual fundraisers or community building activities. They do typically pay better, which allows you to make financial contributions to nonprofits. You're also less likely to be doing overtime or weird hours in a for-profit setting, so you have more time to donate. You can work for a for-profit organization and still feed your passion to help people. A lot of charitable organizations are still for-profits, or large for-profit organizations have a charitable wing. Yes. Which is an option, too.
0: Yes. There are tons of organizations that have whole departments that are based around how do we figure out who to give money to. And then you can be a voice to say, oh, you need to make donations? Hmm. What is the arts organization that meets my values the most? Work with them. You can have a hand in that.
1: It's basically like... What Ben did for Sweetums, he, I mean, he was cleaning up messes, which we hope is not the case, but that a, a large for profit company. What? It's ben Parks and Rec.
0: And Sweetums. Oh, yeah. What else would Sweetums be? I don't know. I could not figure it out. <laughs> I was thinking Sweet Tards, and I was thinking Willy Wonga. and I was like, okay, Beth, it's somewhere in here. Parks and Rec. <laughs> Got it. Yep, Parks and Rec.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of large for-profit companies have a separate foundation or department or whatever that is just solely... Geared toward raising money and taking money and applying it to charitable organizations. So there's still a lot of good you can do in the for profit world. And customer service is an easy way to get instant gratification that you're helping others. Honestly, if you're working for a bank, or in my case, I work for a law firm and I'm a paralegal and I'm working face-to-face with clients all of the time and helping answer their questions and helping ease their way through the legal process, which can be confusing and nerve-wracking. And even just that can be super gratifying. So, I mean, maybe... You're helping them get their Tesla serviced. Maybe you're helping explain their bill to them. Maybe you're helping explain the legal process to them. Maybe you're helping them on their fitness journey. There are so many different ways to help people and feel like you're doing good and making a difference and making things better without having to work for a nonprofit.
0: What's most important is that the company matches your values. The company needs to have values and act appropriately on those values in a way that you love because, I mean, you can really take two approaches to applying for jobs. You will apply for every company and every position, and you will spend the majority of your time customizing your resume for the different positions or companies. Or you're going to focus on a few organizations or a few positions where you're going to spend your time making relationships with the people in those places. Because we know sometimes people get hired just based on the relationship that they've made, not even the resume that they've sent in.
1: Yes. And you'll need to pick what works best for you. Maybe you want to explore different jobs and meet more connects and companies. So you want to do the first one. And that's fine too. Maybe you really want something that fits your values so you follow some companies and people and recruiters to find where you will feel most impactful and valued. No matter which way
0: you choose, just make sure you're leading with you first. Catherine is someone who is driven by a deep passion for equity, which she came to recognize she was not finding in theater administration. Her efforts led to a disillusionment of the industry as a whole, and she made the choice to step away. It was her strong commitment to her mission and herself that led her in a direction she never planned, but that helped her feel good about moving forward.
1: Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Catherine is a good friend of mine. We actually met each other working at Proctor's Theater in Schenectady. Proctor's is one of the large historic touring houses in upstate New York. And we both worked in the box office together and then both worked in administration together as well. I worked in fundraising and Catherine worked in several capacities. (laughs) before finally settling into the education department and Catherine also has a large extensive background in community building using the arts and education not just at Proctor's but elsewhere as well so we're really glad to have you with us and I would love it if we could start out with you telling us a little bit about how and why you got into theater.
2: Yeah. My dad was in the military, in the Air Force specifically. And when we moved, one of the times we moved, I moved from California to Virginia uh, into the 10th grade. And I had a crippling fear of speaking in front of people. It would preoccupy me if I had a public presentation in class to the point that I wasn't listening to anything anybody was saying. And I realized that if I wanted to get anywhere in, the world. I needed to get over that. And when I met with my guidance counselor, uh, which I did in the summer, this woman I'd never met before. I she sees that I want to take a public speaking class because I went to a pretty big high school with lots of different offerings. She goes, "Why do you want to take a public speaking class?" And I said, "Well, I have a terrible fear of speaking in front of people." And she goes, "Why don't you take theater, which is the art of speaking in front of people?" And I was so terrified of her, I just said, "Sure, whatever, whatever." and so I ended up in this theater intro to theater class and I'm going to be honest with myself and with you there are a lot of cute dudes in the drama club I wanted a boyfriend and I was making friends in the theater class and I was like this seems like a really great thing to do I was also in choir so it was like a, a perfect sort of marriage of the things that I found fun and had goals towards and at 15 something clicked I did my first tech rehearsal the rehearsal where The actors get to finally incorporate costumes and set and sound and lights and something just um, opened up in front of me and I thought, this is what I want to do. This is exactly what I want to do. And I had fun performing, but I had a drama teacher who uh, saw my organizational skills and asked me to help him do all kinds of things like organize field trips to the theaters. And uh, this was outside of Washington, D.C. So I got to help organize. I got to be like a mini arts administrator in in a school. And... You know, I went to th- I went to college forty five minutes outside of D.C. in Fredericksburg, Virginia, at what's now called the University of Mary Washington, and I got a great liberal arts theater degree there. And we did field trips where I did field trips in high school. Arena Stage Theater, the first nonprofit theater in the country, uh, it was where I spent a lot of time seeing shows. Shakespeare, the Shakespeare Company Theater, and in growing up there, for finishing high school there, going to college there, I saw this beautiful thing where theater meant something beyond entertainment. I got to my first date outside of high school. A friend of mine took me to see a one-man show about gays in the military. It was done not terribly dissimilar from Anna DeVere Smith's uh Fires in the Mirror. So I saw this one person just like mold and change and have real impact on this audience in a way that I know people left that theater thinking about something that they hadn't thought about before. And I found my way in upstate New York, personal reasons, another story, another time, and took that with me. I brought that with me. There, I mean my my advisor in college did a lot of work in the AIDS community. We did work with the AIDS Quilt. Um, he was the uh, managing director of Woolly Mammoth Theater Company, a playwriting company in DC. And so I had this great groundwork on how theater can really engage people, like to the point that I was like, do I want to join the Peace Corps? And like. Help people learn about h i v through theater, I mean, you know, that's what Peace Corps was doing things like that in certain African countries, and that's and that's sort of where I ended up, long story short, in the education department in Schenectady. and I saw there was a grant opportunity with the Broadway League, which is a trade organization for touring Broadway theaters across the country, where for five you know a grant for five thousand dollars, you could do something they gave out ten. Five thousand dollar grants in education and ten five thousand dollar grants in engagement, audience engagement, like adult education, essentially. And I was just like, okay, what can I do with this? And at the time, Kinky Boots was touring and did a lot of work in local high schools. And I thought, you know, I love Kinky Boots the movie. And when I brought up Kinky Boots the play to my boss, she was like, "Is that really appropriate for teenagers?" I was like, "Yes, it's a PG thirteen movie. It's totally appropriate. It's probably only PG thirteen because it deals with gender issues, like." It's fine. And I got this grant. I ended up doing gender identity workshops with high school students around the themes of Kinky Boots. And that sort of I did many projects for a number of years after that. And that was where I really got to take things I took with me from high school through college and really bring it home. And so I've known I wanted to do this since I was 15. I was lucky.
0: That's very cool. cool.
2: Thanks. I'm happy, <laughs> <laughs>
1: particularly at Proctor's, but also throughout Schenectady and the Capital District. You have worked to bring arts into schools, into education programs and bring students into the theaters. What do you feel the students can get out of a theater related or th- theater-based education.
2: Sure. Funny thing is, I didn't know that the education department of a theater was where I really wanted to be. I kept saying I wanted to do audience development because I know, everyone knows, that the arts cannot thrive unless young people and students and people see an opportunity for themselves in that space. And because, and this is going to probably... I'm 39. I'm just going to put that out there. 20 something years ago, when I went to college, there was a theater management class in my undergrad, but going to graduate school for arts administration or theater management was still, still kind of like a green thing. And so I knew that, and there's, there's data, there's data that shows that if you, as a high school student, if you never see a one professional theater production, by the time you graduate high school, you will never go as an adult. And that, and this is an entire industry that thrives, that will not survive if that doesn't happen. And so, so I was interested in that. I was interested, and this is very personal for me. I struggled a lot growing up, moving around as much as I did. Um, I never really knew where to fit in. And I found that place in theater. I found it in the people there. I found it in the work that we did. I found it in the purpose I found with um, sharing people's stories in a meaningful and authentic way. And I feel that if, I, if one person that I interacted with, one student, finds that refuge that I did. And I'm a cisgendered white lady, okay? I'm 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 a middle class cisgendered white lady, and I felt acceptance I'd never felt before. Not without its own trial and tribulations. Like at one point I was asked to lose weight for a role, but um I just I was personally driven for that. And so it was both like a it's a both a long con of investing in our future as an arts industry and also the immediacy of helping someone find their place.
0: Which I I don't think we do enough as a as theater professionals and b as like theater kids or an academia. Like we don't do enough thinking about building our audience we think a lot about getting kids into theater so that they're performing we think about getting them in so that they're building technical skills so that they're learning collaboration we think a lot about getting kids involved in theater and participating within it actively rather than just going to see it so we don't often think about how going to see it really impacts them we spend so much time talking about how do we get them in the career? How do we get them in the field? How do we get them, you know, to do this career-wise? We don't really think about that as a participation only. Um, but I know, especially for myself, I, I'm in that boat. I was not that good at it. It's something that I've seen the value in more and more, in the especially the last five years.
2: Right. And, you know, it's taken a long journey and I'm embarrassed to admit how long it took me to realize that it's that's really theater's very white and my experience is a very white experience there are many people who came to theater who don't look anything like me who are people of color specifically uh who did not feel that same warm embrace that I did and I tried really hard to incorporate breaking those boundaries at least the people running the theater if I could bring people in to be like look Theater is for everybody, everybody, and everyone. And one of the other projects I did was, um, using the same grant fund available to me, was choreography workshops around Motown the musical with uh, adults on the autism spectrum. So, and the reason that that, I think, is the most impactful for me, I mean, it's a close tie with another one I did. I'm going to get to that in a second was a lot of those adults had never been taken to the theater because their families or people uh, teachers or anybody else who is in charge of their lives didn't think they could sit still for an hour and a half to two hours and a lot of feedback I got was they stood still they they sat in that show they loved it you know they had to they needed intermission when they needed intermission but it's just theater talks about being (laughs) the place where human experience can be lived by everyone and that's. Not the truth all the time.
0: That's something we did at the school I taught at. I was there for four years. And one of the things we did, uh, a senior project, and he directed Alice in Wonderland. And we had one night, I guess it was a day, we had a day show for people who are disabled. Speaking to exactly what you're speaking to, it's interesting seeing that, you know, for me, it's interesting hearing that that's a problem in upstate New York. I expect it in western Kentucky, (laughs) i i don't know that i expect that problem in new york i mean it's
2: universal it's it's everywhere every every community has their own struggles but it's it's a societal perception i think there's that quote from pretty
1: woman about the opera i forget the word for word but it's basically like, you either love it or you hate it, and if you love it, you'll love it forever, and something along those lines. And uh, I, I think theater has that as well, but I think theater in particular, aside from opera, has the ability to have a much wider and broader appeal, and still it seems as if there's a huge schism between the general public and the theater, people who love theater. And and then beyond that, there is a schism between people of color and indigent communities and disabled people and the, the general public as well. So then it's like there are additional layers or hurdles to jump over
2: well it's also more than a price point everybody thinks if you make the tickets cheap enough anybody and everybody will come see your show no are they followed in your lobby they don't want to come to your space are they um followed to the bathroom are they asked if they're ticket holder like there are things and this is usually the volunteers not even necessarily the staff people so you have like hundreds of people who act as guardians to a place that should be accessible to everybody. And, you know, I dressed up for theater days in high school. I loved theater day. I would wear my cutest skirt, but did I care if my classmates dressed up with me? No, because we're going to the theater. And and it's just, you know, I've had friends who've had horrible experiences in local community theaters or in other th- in, in professional theaters just because of the way they are spoken to while they are waiting in a lobby. Or there you can't even get to your seats. There are so only so many wheelchair accessible seats. And they, you know, there's the Americans with Disability Act requirements that some theaters can some theaters are historical theaters are grandfathered, by the way. If your theater has a historical designation in certain regions, they don't have to be ADA compliant. So do you have an elevator that doesn't work? You know, it's just things like this where it's like stop being gatekeepers. Stop, stop it. You don't even know it. You don't even know you're doing it. You're keeping people who would otherwise find beauty and joy and all the things that I love about theater, that we love about theater, they're being kept from it. And it's not just a price point.
0: Well, and I can speak only as the sister of a disabled brother. So that's the only thing I can speak from experience of. But from that experience, like I don't bring him places if I have to wonder if it's going to be a bad experience. So unless you're actively inviting me into a space with my brother, understanding that he is autistic, if you are not actively making that engagement, I can't trust that I can bring him to your space. Absolutely. And I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. Mm
2: -hmm. Oh, without a doubt. And, And what does safety mean for some people? You know, some people, safety means having a police officer nearby, and for other people, having a police officer nearby is the absolute antithesis of that. And again, middle-class white lady here, I see a cop and I think, there's a reason for me to be afraid. But theaters are upping their security. So now you have metal detectors in places that you didn't before, you now, and, and the touring companies are requiring this. It's not even just the theater spaces. It's an, it is becoming a, a prevalent and insidious industry practice that hadn't existed before. I fear I'm getting off track. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> I'm just very passionate about this. Like, it's just, oh. No, I think it's important to talk about. And it actually does kind of lead into, now, COVID came around. And by that point, you were working for the Art Center, right? hmm But uh, were laid off due to COVID as were so many, but I happen to know that you had started to look for other jobs prior to that, or started to consider looking for jobs outside the industry prior to that. So I feel like this maybe ties in and and gets us going down that road. And what what made you start to think that it was time to get out of the theater industry altogether?
2: This has been a very difficult journey for me, and I am definitely not at the end of it. And so you asked me this question at a time that I'm still figuring that out myself. Being laid off from COVID, maybe it's a blessing I didn't know (laughs) I needed. And I was struggling very much with the whiteness of it all you know, I went to the Art Center, which is a community arts organization. It's an arts organization that has a gallery, it has classes, it has like pottery, it has painting. So I, I went from theater to a, a, just a general arts place. And I was managing the Black Box Theater. And I was getting all these ideas about who can I get in this space that hasn't been in this space before. And I was getting not pushback from my immediate supervisor, but like just a general it's a small, it's only about five staff people, but I was getting this weird sense of like, that's not what we're about. And I'm like, but we're the art center. And the other place I had been before, Proctor's, I'd been there for nine years. Like it was the community's living room was how, um, was becoming this dichotomous statement. You can't be the community's living room when you are ostensibly operating as a school where you have children just from, you got to protect the kids. And the, and again, it was this weird, I was this weird push pull. Whereas how are you protecting the students when they're living an experience that I can't speak to? And, And at the time I was actually a school board member for the city of Schenectady school board. And so I was a board member for the students that were coming into that building. And so I was really struggling with what I was learning about the district's philosophies and having more teachers of color and how, what I was learning about how students of color need teachers of color. They need teachers who look like them, who know how to, who have a lived, a shared lived experience, because it comes down to, do you have the right hair tie available to your, to the girls with black hair? It is a different hair tie than what I would need. I, ha- I have curly hair, so I've like, I've admittedly looked into some uh, hair products of color because they, they actually work better for me than like regular White people hair products, but like you know, who has that stuff laying around? Who would think of that as a white person unless you've grown up around black hair? So, so that stuff was starting to really get to me, and I, so my personal journey was taking me in this place where I, I I had become part of this organization for progressive leadership called New Leaders Organization, where I was doing a lot of anti-racism education for myself. I was getting anti-racism education on the school board. I was meeting more people who have different lived experiences, and I was becoming friends with them and. And just like listening about that and meeting all these artists of color in this community that are not being hired by these organizations because those organizations say they don't apply to our jobs was starting to become bullshit to me. It was all like the fact that the only people of color that I would see working at either of these organizations were in their housekeeping department or their maintenance departments, which by the way, were the first to go with the COVID layoffs. Okay. So these places essentially laid off their entire workforce of color. The security measures that were going up. We had a front desk person at the art center who uh, would call another employee if a black person showed up with a backpack and would make them follow them in the in the gallery. And I was this person who was like, "We can't have that anymore." But these organizations were saying, "But, but, and whatever the whatever came after the but, it just didn't matter to me anymore." I got to this point where I was like, "People are being harmed by this." And then here we are in you know June twenty twenty. It's been happening this whole time. It's not just June. It was. George Floyd was not the first black person to be killed by a police officer. I just saw these theaters perpetuating suits and scenarios where people would be put in harm's way, uh, where they weren't hiring people of color. So messaging that was going out wasn't authentic to people. So, so when you say, Beth, can I bring my brother who has disabilities to this space? I need them to tell me that. We aren't telling the, any community other than white people, white suburban people, that these places are for them. And I couldn't be a part of that anymore. I'm actually really upset talking about it. Because it was harming people I I care about. It's harming people I don't even know. And I refuse to be a part of it anymore. So I was getting to a place where I was like, how do I take, how do I find a, a place that just believes that? How do I find a workplace that simply sees the humanity in everybody? And I was tired of being broke. I was so tired of being broke all the time. And due to life circumstances, I had, both good and bad. I I didn't carry any debt with me. So I was just living within my means, but my partner, I made less than my, I made more than my husband and I was making not a lot of money. When I tell friends who like make normal, quote, normal money and quote, normal jobs, they would be mind blown at how little we made combined to the point that we aren't having children. We are, we have an active financial choice not to have children because numbers, it just, it just wouldn't work. We live in a loft apartment and I was just tired of it. I was, Undervalued. I was not heard. I felt unsupported in, in many different ways. Not by everybody. I feel like I need to say that. But there were times where I just was like, "What's? Why do I put? Why am I bleeding for these places? Why am I bleeding for this work? They're not paying me for that plasma, <laughs> not, you know." And and I didn't get a master's degree. I toyed with getting a master's degree because I was feeling stuck. But I knew that I wanted to live here. That I want. I wanted to live where I live. And that meant working where I worked. There are only so many places in this industry, in this region, and I'd worked for so many of them at the point where I'm like, I can't go back to any of those places. I can't keep having these conversations at those places. I looked at the tax form for one of them. The CEO made a quarter of a million dollars and their second highest paid white male employee, well, he's second highest paid employee just happened to be a, a white guy, made hundred thousand dollars. Someone else in his department made only $25,000. They paid a human being who had a college degree $25,000 and they think that's okay. This is industry. Not just that, that is not a
1: livable wage. That is not a livable wage for anyone in in and of itself, but also percentage wise, that is 10% of the CEO's salary. And that is a very messed up mindset
2: and and you know a lot of these places and this is this is an industry issue I'm not hammering away at at places where I've worked this is an industry problem I had a friend who was an education director for another regional theater and she quit and she got a job as a receptionist at some office and immediately made more money answering phones opening up letters this work is devalued, is undervalued, and is devalued. And the reason that so many women work in these arts organizations, the guy who made $100,000 had only women working for him in his department, worth noting, is because for some reason, and this is, this is like capitalism, it's not just the arts. Women are, we all know women are paid less. Black women are paid even less than white women and um, Hispanic women, Latinx women are paid even less. It's just, it's a mess. It's horrible. But there's this assumption that women are the second earner in a household. And so you can justify paying them less. I'm the breadwinner in my relationship. And I probably will. My husband didn't complete college. I'm the one with the college degree, even though he went for three and point seven five years. He doesn't have the BA. And that's what people need. And so all these jobs, that $25,000 job, they had a college degree requirement. Talk about gatekeeping. Take out background checks in your job postings. Just take it out. Even if it's a job that eventually requires a background check, don't put it in your job posting because think about who's not going to apply to that. Take out that you're going to do because like if you have a bankruptcy, if you have any sort of like record, anything, no matter what, you're not going to have people applying for your job. And that includes all kinds of diversity. It includes um, economic diversity, includes single parents. It includes like, is your workplace going to be good for that? And none of those places were and they said things like, we are a family. I worked at all these arts places, in numerous arts places said, we are a family, which really just means I'm going to emotionally take advantage of you.
1: Red flag, red flag. We are a family is such a red flag.
2: Yeah, because as soon as I was getting ready to ask for another raise, or I just wanted to meet with a boss, I was told I had just gotten a raise, which was, by the way, two years old at that point. So I had to get out. I was, I was shaking. I was stressed. I, could, I felt that I was keeping my family, my husband and I, from moving forward in anything we want to do. We want to be foster parents, which requires at least one more bedroom, which meant either $400 more in rent a month or just get a mortgage. But how do we get a down payment when we make not a lot of money? I don't even know if I should be honest and just say two grown adults, two college-educated two college white people in 2019 made $79,000 combined. And it's like, so when I have friends who are like, when are you guys gonna have a kid? I'm like, I work for a nonprofit arts organization, and I make more than my husband. You want to have my kid? You want to pay for me to put my kid in daycare? So can I tell and this you? This is coming from someone who daydreamed about being an artistic director, running her own theater, being able to create with people, and. There are communities of color doing it way better than any professional theater that I've ever seen. There's an organization called Rooted in downtown Albany, New York, who has healing through the arts courses um, with my friend Aaron Moore, who's an excellent educator and performer and writer. But it's just sort of, they're doing it, and they're, but they're making their own space to do it. Because corporate theaters, because that's what they are, aren't allowing that authentic creation of experience and art. So yeah, that's my very long answer to I couldn't do it anymore. And I wanted to make some money. And, you know, I'm now a contact tracer team supervisor, which is a job I wouldn't have been able to get without my time at the theater, because I was able to talk about my ability to collaborate across different locations. So I'm able to work remotely, I was able to talk about managing people with different schedules and different needs and and just like coaching people. I, I love, I have a team of um, 17 people who are, report to me right now. And I love being able to just like be the boss I wanted. To, I want, I, I, if you know, if they say I have to leave work early, cause my kid's sick, I can say, okay, you know, do you want to make it up later or do you want to just take the time? And those, I, I just, I get to be that boss. And so now I was unemployed for eight months from the layoff, which I do want to say my job was grant supported. I should not have been laid off, but that's a different kernel. Okay. Because, because I didn't want to be there anymore. I was, I, have aspirations to run for another office. And I had this workplace. I was like, if you weren't here all the time, you're not committed to this work. And that's, that's a lie. That's, that's kiss. I can be committed to that work and also be committed to my community. I can be on the board of organizations. I can volunteer. Why is that a threat to my job? And I was feeling that I was feeling that pull. I was feeling that that wasn't possible to work for an arts organizations that paid me pennies and, go out there and try and like be a part of the change in my community. And so I'm still struggling with that because I don't know where to go from here. I have these skills that got me this job, but when I was applying for jobs for eight months, I was having a really hard time even getting, you know, I mean, there were the unemployment numbers were historically high, so I have to give myself some credit here, but I'm, I'm you know, talking about being able to collaborate and work remotely and managing people and managing deadlines. Cause everything's a deadline in the arts. It's what I'm taking with me. And I'm pretty good at it. So so I I owe that. that. Thank you. So there's a lot I, I, I am indebted to a lot that I, to, to my history, to my life and the arts. And I'm hopeful that one day maybe I can come back. Like if we move, maybe I can find something in a new market. Like I was thinking about moving to LA (laughs) because I mean, there's so much to do out there, but It's a very long answer to your question, but that's – it's just been weighing heavy on my heart and my mind, and I know I'm not alone in that, but I just couldn't – just can't burn out. I've burned out.
0: Burnout's a very real problem in this industry, and it's something that people justify, or they talk about the family, or they say, oh, this person would never do it to me, so it's okay. I'll just keep going when – Really? You're lighting yourself on fire to keep someone else warm. Stop Mm -hmm. it.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: And it's so easy in the arts industry because we're so deeply passionate about it. And it's a huge part of not just what we do, but who we are that it's hard to let go of. And it's hard to recognize the signs of burnout and we're taught to just deal with it and see these things as just par for the course and And to
2: be grateful you know there's this like underlying you're saying you know amy you touched on it being par for the course some places take it even farther than that say you should be grateful that you are able to do this here with us
0: Yes, and we're taught that very early. I was hearing something. I was, you know, scrolling TikTok, and someone was talking about how as an undergrad in the arts, I think they're a theater BFA program. They're told, you know, one of the first conversations you have is this percentage of you will not be doing this in three years or four years or as a career, you know, so you should appreciate everything you can get. And I remember having conversations about, oh, you need to be good so that someone else will hire you, so that someone else will work with you and you need to appreciate everything. My first job out of grad school, I made under thirty thousand dollars a year. And I thought, oh, I'm so lucky to have a job in my field and this will be a good stepping stone. I should just take it. And it was it was a great experience. It led me to my next step, like it definitely was not a waste, but damn.
2: And it's this really super weird thing where it's like, this is fun, right? In theater, everybody chips in. Everybody does stuff when it needs to be done. But once that's your job and you have other responsibilities inside your job, whatever they are, it doesn't even matter if you have kids or not. Single people shouldn't have to do more work just because they don't have kids, okay? Or childless people. Single people can have kids too. Where you just do it. But then when you start to learn about labor laws like <laughs> overtime or comp time or hourly versus salary and you start to you start to push set your own boundaries with workplaces and they find ways to move it or make you the asshole. They make you the asshole for saying I can't do that. I once uh okay, one time I I set up this event. I I got tickets to a concert. I made sure I had someone else covering that event. I had all the things, all my boxes checked. I just wasn't there, and I got in trouble for that because I wasn't there. I didn't need to do anything. I would have just been there for the sake of being there. And they were like, maybe you shouldn't have gotten tickets to that concert. And I'm like, but it was covered. I got coverage for me. And it became it's just this thing. It's just so now I have this ever present. It's not unique to my experience. I know it's not, and because it's happened all these places I work, whether it's a theater, any sort of nonprofit tends to have that attitude. But as soon as I'm like, "No, you want me to do this, but you're not going to give me overtime," then I'm leaving.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, how are you bringing your love of community and your love of helping? Uh, the greater good. How are you bringing that with you into even this current job where you are a contact tracer manager?
2: Sure. Um, So contact tracers get yelled at, sworn at, hung up on their, you name it, that's happened to them. I've had people on my team who have accents being told that this is America they want to talk to an American. Uh, It's been... Difficult work in a way that I didn't anticipate, but I'm grateful for this opportunity because I'm able to take that empathy that I spent 25 years honing in an arts environment, which not everybody does, but I did. um, I take that to that work and I say, you know what? We have a goal here. This is actually a job where there is a fire to put out, this is a job where there are lives on the line. So my stress level is actually on par with the work that I'm doing, whereas I felt like I'm trying to put on a summer camp for kids and why are people acting like this is life or death I'm actually working with people who are trying to stop people from leaving their home and spread a spread a deadly disease so I'm able to take sort of the perspective that I gathered from the arts and and the community building and I take it to this I love I like I mentioned before I love being able to just listen to my tracers when they have a problem. And I'm like, that sucks. Do you need to take a break? You know, and I look for ways to build within my team. So I have like my little team and then I'm part of another level of a team and then there's a region. So I'm like three levels down. And then I get to take that same sort of community building to my bigger team. We have like morning announcement posts where we share a ton of information because like, as we all know, everything is constantly changing with COVID. I get to put in little games into that to show to not only show the supervisors that everybody's reading our posts, but it's a great way to start conversations within our staff. So uh, in a way I take theater games and I put it on Microsoft teams to create this like pseudo office. So those are the things that I'm taking. I'm not able to do the kind of things I would love to do.
0: I love um, that. Can you is, talk about that a little bit more about like with the games that you're using and bringing on teams and how you're doing that?
2: Sure. It's sometimes it's as simple as, Coffee or tea was kind of a dud. Like, do you drink coffee or tea? Because it was just oh, so many people drink coffee. Tea's better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <I agree. laughs> even just one simple fact about you, kind of like if you were to take the name game when you first get a group of of students, and you're like, uh, "What's one thing about you that we would never figure out?" And so that's something I put in there. Be like, "Fun fact about yourself." And or something we would never guess about you. And it, there's not as much interaction back and forth as I would like. Because, you know, we do have a task at hand and it involves calling people. So it's not like you can really spend your whole time on the the channel just, like, chatting about cheese as much as I would love to talk about cheese all day. But we are not on a lot of, like, calls. Like, so we don't hear a lot of each other's voices. It's a lot of just typing back and forth. So it's mostly just conversation skills that I've learned in trying to get kids out of their shell and a get to know your game kind of thing that I incorporate, um, in contact tracing. Well, not in contact tracing with contact tracing.
1: <laughs> You're really team building and able to humanize the computer screen in front of you by doing these things. And that is a huge piece of what theater is about. And you're still bringing these things into a completely non-theater-related industry, which is great. These are probably not necessarily special or specific to theater. They can be used in any industry. But you have a theater background and you're able to understand And appreciate the need for this human connection and that i think is
2: says a lot i'm really lucky it's um my personal journey has brought me to a place i would never have guessed and there was some stuff some real shit i lived through to get me here and i wouldn't trade any of it because it made me who I am and it brought me to this literal place and it brought me to this figurative place and the arts will always be a part of that. And then it'll be impossible to divorce myself from any of the things I learned from that, you know, whether I have to do a quick pop-up Q and a or do a quick presentation in front of a room of people, just kill time, dead air, you know, any of that, none of that phases me anymore. And I owe that a lot to that weird guidance
0: counselor have you ever spoken to that guidance counselor like do they know any of this
2: no the last time i saw her once more in high school it was you know it was the time like where are you gonna apply to college and she like made up all these colleges i wanted to apply to because they had theater programs and i was like i didn't apply to any of them but she went to i think northwestern and she was like you're you should apply to northwestern they have a good theater program i was like okay cool because i ended up getting I mean, I didn't apply there, but I ended up doing really well. I thrived in high school because of that. I also learned a lot of resiliency that I don't think I gave myself enough credit for in theater with just the sheer amount of rejection. <laughs> uh, for looking for office jobs, looking for getting cast in a play for fun or for work. There's resiliency that you you develop by just participating in theater. I cry every time I don't get a show. Every time. Every time my husband's like, why do you do this? It makes you so sad. I'm like, because if I don't even try, where's the fun through my snot and tears. <laughs> so speaking of
1: which I had wifi go out last night and I am someone who can't sleep without noise, but I didn't have anything downloaded. I was like, Oh my goodness. What do I have? that I can just turn on so I'm not sitting here in silence and stewing in my own thoughts. And the one thing that I was able to find on my phone was a production of Music Man from 2012 (laughs) that Catherine and I were in together. (laughs) And I'm actually proud to say that I dragged Catherine to that audition. I made her do it. And it was her first audition in the first show you had done in what? I mean, years at that point.
2: Almost a decade. Almost a decade. Maybe eight. Yeah. Wow. First I pretty time. much stopped when I moved up here. And Amy was like, you need to do something. You need to bring this back into your life. And I was like, you're absolutely correct. And something that's very pertinent to this conversation, bringing up the music man. I still have friends from that show. Who you know, I see in and out either I've done another show with them since or I haven't done a show. We just see each other and say hi, and it's like, you know, seeing people who've been through some shit together, even though that wasn't that bad of a show. There was one <laughs> rehearsal, though, where we spent three hours doing a two second segment, but that's another <laughs> day, but like one friend from that show, her name is Kelly, she's been reaching out to me about finding a job, and I got an interview thanks to her, just giving someone my resume, and like these are connections that people take for granted that they should not take for granted and that job didn't go anywhere, but, and I need to tell her that I need to follow up with her, but you make these connections in the arts that don't require the same sort of effort because there's this understanding about like, you just move around in these spaces and you support each other when you can, and you don't have to go to everybody's shows or you don't have to keep track of that. But it's, it's relationships that I've built starting from that show that have stayed with me all these years later.
0: Well, Catherine, what advice would you give to somebody who's looking at maybe leaving their arts career and going somewhere else? What would be your piece of advice?
2: One piece of advice? Yeah. Hire someone to look at your resume. That's the most succinct advice I can give you. Why? It's all about the art of marketing yourself. Because no job in the arts is the same across The industry, even of itself, you know, everybody kind of understands what a development associate or assistant or director does. They raise money. But in terms of what a job description to for an education manager, program manager, or director, or a specialist, or a coordinator, those are all the same titles or different titles for the same job. So, what you need to do is you need to take yourself out of a traditional resume, which I clung to with my bloody fingernails because I was like, if I don't explain. To the detail what i did you aren't going to understand what i've done but you need to take you take those paragraphs of however many envelopes you could stuff in an hour and turn it into something that's more tangible across any industry so hire someone to look at your resume to translate from theater from arts lingo to industry-wide terms terminology and formatting i'm still terrified i'm still terrified of like giving up that two-page resume that's Size ten font, because I don't know how else to explain what I've done. People don't know what this means. People don't know what I've done. (laughs) They have no idea.
0: (laughs) But really, they're just interested in can you do the things that they want you to do?
2: Yes. What, what, where I really get frustrated? The most frustrating thing about the last eight months of job searching is I've done so much random stuff that is on my resume: copywriting, proofreading random graphic designing staff management event management all those things but I didn't like have a degree in it or I didn't do it for three consecutive years so in in order to take the little bit I did across all those jobs over nine years and make it sound like I really did do all that copywriting and I really did do all that proofreading because I did I just didn't have that job title that's changing that around on that resume is pretty crucial Does that make sense yeah who who told you that A very wise woman named Amy (laughs) Shay. She was like, Catherine, do this. And I was like, I want to do this. (laughs) And you know, Out
1: of the Arts is here to help you with that.
2: (laughs) I do. I do know that.
1: Ultimately, it comes down to what you need, and you need to come across in your resume, not someone else. So it's really important that. You're able to make the right decisions for you and your resume. But that being said, just a friendly reminder that it is really important to translate those skills and translate your resume for someone who is also going to be looking at it very quickly.
2: Oh, yeah. And, you know, when I think anybody, I've done a lot of like career changing workshops over the last year. When people ask me what I'm looking for, to be very honest with you, I'm looking for a workplace that values my experience, my time. And when my day is done, my day is done. I don't want any more nights and weekends. Those are now reserved for my family and my other life goals. At 22, yeah, I'd give you more time. Now I look back and go, Catherine, that was illegal. But, (laughs) but like that's all I'm looking for. And what that means where I take this arts, you know, to find a marriage between the community building that I've done through the arts and um, where I want to go. It's sort of, I am, I am feeling a little lost. I'm not going to lie about that. I feel like that's important to say when talking about doing a career change, I'm feeling very um, unmoored. Um, But, you know, I'll get there when I get there.
0: And it's a process. It's not It's not something that we get to very quickly. Like, you know, you think about it, you go to college for four years. And in those four years, how many people change their major? And how many people change their decisions then? So I, I feel like maybe four years is a new benchmark we should be telling people when they're thinking about making a career change. Because you could make a career change and then decide it's terrible. And you went the wrong direction. And maybe you should go a different direction. And that's okay. It's okay not to hit the bullseye on the first try. Uh, so maybe we should be telling people it's okay to feel like this is a process. It's it's not going to happen overnight.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, as much as I want it to. <laughs>
1: right. <Yeah. laughs> right. And making the decision doesn't necessarily mean that you're just everything's going to click into place and you're going to be comfortable and know what you're doing. Whether you're forced to make the decision or you come to it of your own accord over a period of time, it almost doesn't matter because you still have to take the time to figure things out for yourself, figure out where you're going to go next, figure out how you're going to get there, figure out what you want and what you need right now and moving forward. It's a process for sure. As always, thank you for listening. Don't forget to come join the conversation at outofthearts.com and on social media at Out of the Arts. If you like today's podcast, please make sure to subscribe, share, and tune in next time. Arts Career Evolutions podcast was created, written, and produced by Beth Partham and Amy Shake. Because we are super excited to flaunt our awesome transferable skills in any way we can. Speaking of... Audio engineering by Beth Partham, and music by Amy Shake. because as long as we're still paying on our student loans, you better bet we're going to keep using our degrees in the way they were intended. Arts Career Evolutions podcast is copyrighted by Out of the Arts, LLC 2021.